following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Well, uh, let's get into God's Word, shall we? Uh, Philippians is the book that we're working through at the moment. Uh, We're going to look at just a short passage from Philippians this morning in chapter 1, verse 27 to 30. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you were going through the same struggle you saw that I had, and now hear that I still have. Well, uh, many of you, I imagine, would have heard a couple of years ago of the scandal of Ravi Zacharias that broke after his death. Uh, this was a man, you might have, might have just heard the name, uh, but a man who was probably the greatest Christian apologist of his generation, um, renowned um, defender of the faith, someone who debated against atheists all over the world and gave a lot of Christians a lot more confidence, I think, in what they believed. And then after his death, it came out that he had basically been living a double life. Uh, that there, I won't go into all the details, but just horrendous things had happened. And the man that people thought they had known and heard was completely different to the man who had existed uh, in private. And there was just a total double life, a parallel life that had been going on. And it just sent these shockwaves through the Christian world. Christians were shocked. And you can only imagine the response of non-Christians. I mean, you imagine people that had debated against Ravi and uh, non-Christians that had interacted with him hearing about the scandal and just reinforcing probably all, all the things that they already thought about Christian hypocrisy. Uh, and it just did massive damage to the cause of Christ. That story has been back in my head this week as I've looked at this passage. It's just circled around, I think, because it's brought me back to the importance of these words that Paul says, and particularly this first sentence that he says in this passage. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And, and I, I know that the Ravi Zacharias story is an extreme story. I know that is, that is on the extreme edge of things. But in reality, would you agree that this danger runs through all of our hearts? That, that we are all doing this all the time, living in a manner that is not conformed to the gospel that we claim we believe in. There is this disconnect in our lives between what we say we believe and what we sit in church affirming and then what we actually go out and live. And it may not be massive and it may not be hugely noticeable to a lot of other people, but that disconnect is a problem. Brennan Manning, a Christian author, once said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world is Christians (laughs) who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyles. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Now, we are all broken people and God is full of grace. But we need to take seriously these words that Paul says when he calls us to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. And that word worthy, it just means fitting. 
that we have this precious gospel that we believe. We've got this good news, this truth of the gospel, and we're called to make sure that our lives fit the good news that we believe. Paul, I don't think, is asking us for perfection. He's just asking us for consistency. He's just saying, let's just try and have consistency between the character of our lives and the confession of our faith between what we believe and how we behave. Because when we don't have that consistency, it's not just a problem for us, it's a problem for the world. Because they look at the church and they shake their heads and they walk away. Like, why would I buy into that? When there is this group of people who live in a way totally different to what they claim they believe. So, Paul in this passage is going to talk about three ways in which we can start developing consistency in living out the gospel and looking at our lives and asking, how do I live in a manner that is worthy of this incredible gospel that I've received to close that gap and live out the gospel in our everyday lives in a way that's faithful and authentic and real? So three things, and you'll be pleased to know, they all start with the letter S. Yep, we got some alliteration this morning. It's going to be great. Classic preaching technique. All right. Uh, and it's not even me, it's Paul's words here, uh, at least in English. So the first word is standing. So he says, in uh, this is towards the end of verse 27, uh, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, standing firm. And Paul is talking about unity here, standing firm as one, not just you standing firm in your faith, but us standing firm together. He's talking about the unity of the church. We stand firm together in one spirit. And that spirit that we stand firm in, has the word spirit got a capital S in your translations? Some it does, some it doesn't. It should have a capital S. Because the spirit Paul is talking about is not a human spirit. It's not the psychological spirit of unity that we feel connected to each other. It is the Holy Spirit. He is the one who brings the unity, right? It's not just that we get together and feel good about ourselves. We're united in the spirit. We have this thing that Paul calls the unity of the spirit. And we have that, but we're also called to maintain that. In fact, Paul says, make every effort. This is Ephesians now. He says, make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit. So unity is something we've got to work at. Why have we got to work at our unity? Not just for our sake, but the focus here is for the sake of the world. So I've talked a lot about unity over the past few months for our sake as a church, because that's important. But equally important, our unity speaks to the world. Right, Our, The world needs to see a united church. Let me read you a quote here from Francis Schaeffer, um, a great Christian apologist of a previous generation. And he's, I mean, so Schaeffer is writing in the 1970s. And you might think, what does that have to do with today? Well, his words have an incredibly timeless relevance, I think, and you'll hear that. He says, yet, unless true Christians show observable love to each other, Christ says the world cannot be expected to listen. Even when we give proper answers, let us be careful indeed to spend a lifetime studying to give honest answers. For years, the Orthodox Evangelical Church has done this very poorly. So it is well to spend time learning to answer the questions of those who are about us, who ask about us maybe. But after we have done our best to communicate to a lost world, here's the key phrase, still, we must never forget that the final apologetic which Jesus gives is the observable love of true Christians for true Christians. And that phrase, final apologetic, is such a good one. that the, the word apologetic means to defend the faith, right? Defend the faith. And we always think defending the faith is about talking 
and giving arguments for the existence of God. Well, yes, there's absolutely a place for that. In fact, I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But what Schaefer is saying is actually, you know what the greatest argument for the gospel is? You know what the greatest defense of the gospel is? Unity in the church. And Jesus said it. They will know you're my disciples by what? Your love for one another. Like he, I think he meant those words when he said them, didn't he? He wasn't just throwing words into the air. They, the world, will know that you are my disciples by not having memorized a whole lot of arguments, not because you've read every apologetics book, not because you've memorized the six proofs for the existence of God, but by your love for one another. That's how the world will know that we are genuine disciples of Jesus. So yes, we should use our words and develop good argument and responses and answers. But the final apologetic is our love for one another. That is a critical reason why unity is important in the church. So that matters, just to give you a practical application, not just in the way that we treat one another. It matters in the way that we treat Christians outside of our church. When non-Christians see churches and Christians just throwing rocks at other Christians who don't think the same as them or don't worship the same as them or don't hold exactly the theological positions that they hold, again, the world just shakes their head and walks away. We need to love and respect Christians right across the denominational spectrum from different traditions, different backgrounds all around the world. We've got brothers and sisters in Christ, many different types of churches, many different types of services, many different types of theologies mixed in there. Now, we hold true around the essentials of our faith. I'm not compromising on that, but we've got to appreciate that it's a big family. It's a big table. There's a lot of seats around this table, and we can't start saying, well, it's only the people sitting next to me that are part of this table, part of this family. It's a big table, and we've got to welcome our brothers and sisters in Christ from many diverse backgrounds, traditions, denominations, and respect them and love them and not criticize and throw rocks at them. Again, not just for our own sake, but for our witness in the world, because the world's watching. So unity is fundamental. Standing firm in one spirit for the church and for the world. That's our first S. All right, you ready for number two? So, first is standing, and then secondly, Paul talks about striving. Uh, right at the end of verse 28, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Some of your translations may say contending, may have that word in there, contending as one. Uh, the, the Greek word behind that, it's a military word, uh, and it's this idea of soldiers in the midst of a battle pushing forward, that idea of taking ground. That idea of not, not shrinking back, not letting the enemy walk all over you, but moving forward and, and, and pressing forward in the battle, striving forward, contending. And what Paul is saying there is that we are called in the midst of a world that's largely given up on God to be those that move forward with the gospel, those that hold out the gospel in a world of darkness, to be those that are willing to shine a bit of light into the world, in, in a world that turns its back on all that we hold dear, to be those that are still willing to step forward and offer the truth and offer the message that the gospel is still good news. Still good news, even today, even for a broken and a hurting world. And, and to be bold about that, not to be disrespectful, not to be harsh, not to push in where we're not wanted, but to have some courage. Because I think we can be so timid in our witness and we're so... Uh, we can be so bland and stop contending and stop striving because we get overwhelmed by the power of a secular culture. 
because we, we worry that we're in this massive secular machine and nobody wants to hear the message. Nobody seems to want to uh, have, give any credence to the gospel at all. Everyone thinks that being a Christian is just some weirdo thing that's a hangover from a previous uh, generation, a previous time in history. And we can kind of lose our confidence with that because we feel like, oh, the whole world's against us and I've got nothing to say. And everyone's kind of got better answers than me. We've got to remember, even in a heavily secular culture like we live in, people are still desperate for meaning and hope. Everyone's trying to construct meaning in their life. Even the most secular person has got to try and find some meaning in their life. And people are hopelessly confused as to how to do that. They don't know how to construct identity anymore because they're told you've got to just try and find it within yourself and, and self-actualize. People don't know how to try and find meaning and purpose because there's nothing beyond themselves. you just got to try and make do. People are so confused. We forget that. We get all scared. Like, oh, I've got nothing to say because everyone's kind of against Christianity. We, there are hurting, broken, confused people who may put up a tough exterior, but underneath they're trying to put these fragmented pieces of existence together. They don't know what they're doing. Our world is so confused. It's confused about truth. You see that. I'll give you an example at the moment. You think about what's going on in Russia and Ukraine. So you think about what Putin's doing and you think about the language that's being used, right? So we call this war evil, right? And we use terms like unjust and inhumane and wrong and evil. And it's right that we do that. Like, I believe it is right that we speak against what is happening in Ukraine in the strongest possible terms. But here is the problem. In our culture, on the one hand, we want to we say that Putin is evil, on the other hand, we want to say, well, ultimately, there is no good. And ultimately, there is no evil because ultimately there is no moral foundation. That ultimately, I live out my truth and you live out your truth and we're all just trying to live our best life. There's ultimately no real foundation to try and make value judgments about what someone does that may be right or someone does that may be wrong. So maybe Putin's just living out his truth. You know, like you can't have it both ways. So I, I, I absolutely believe that we should speak against what's happening in Ukraine in the strongest possible terms. But you can only do that when you've got a moral foundation. You can only do that from a foundation of having some basis in truth that you've got to believe. If you're going to say something is evil, don't you have to have some concept of what good and evil is? And where does that come from? Out of your own head? Majority rules? What? what how does this work? If you're going to genuinely have a moral foundation, that's got to be something beyond yourself and beyond your group. That's got to ultimately be something that comes outside of us. And the only one who ultimately gives us a foundation of morals and ethics and truth is God himself. And so as Christians, we can speak against that which is evil, and we can do it from a genuine foundation. That's just consistent. So there is an area in which we can, we can gently start to dismantle some of the contradictory thinking that is out there where people have this confusion of wanting to denounce evil and at the same time say, well, there's no such thing as truth. In that kind of environment, we've actually got something to say. We don't need to shrink back. We can say that is just fu is a fundamental contradiction. And that's not a story worth living. That's, that's just broken. And this is the problem. Secularism is so broken. It doesn't give people a coherent narrative to live out of at all. It's a moment for the church to... Ask the Holy Spirit to give us the courage to speak a better, truer story into that world. The story of a God who loves us, who has redeemed us, 
and who is coming again to rescue us. That's a story of, that is coherent. It makes sense. And it gives us a story to live out of in an integrated way. So don't feel like everyone's against you and you've got nothing to say. Be willing to contend. Be willing to contend for the gospel. And let me just say this too. Contending for the gospel, I don't mean to portray that it's always going to be this kind of clash. right? Some, sometimes there's, there's a time. There's a time to, to point out contradiction in another worldview where that exists. But contending for the gospel is also the simple act of holding out the good news and taking the everyday opportunities that are there. Just to offer hope and, and offer life and offer love to people, and point people towards Jesus. That's contending for the gospel as well. And, and that's done out of a heart of love. It should all be done out of a heart of love and grace and respect for other people. I want to give you an example of this. Someone in our church who's, who's taken some steps, and, and I would say this is contending for the gospel, but in a very simple and a very everyday way. You know Jan Levine? This is her story. Have a look at the screen. Well, every day I walk my dog around the neighbourhood and I get to know a lot of the neighbours and, I, and on, it was uh, the morning of Halloween and sitting on the pavement was this girl sitting down and she had a big basket obviously waiting for um, sweets to be dropped into her basket even though it was early in the morning. So I went over to her and I spoke to her and we struck up a conversation and I said to her I would go to the shop later, buy some you know, sweets and drop them back to her. So I went to the shops and I did and so I got the card. So when I got the card, I, um, I think prompting from the Holy Spirit, I decided to put on if you ever want to come to Sunday school or your family wants to come to church this is my name this is my phone number when I next saw her she was uh, really thrilled to see me and she loves she loves animals and um, she dragged me by the hand and said come and get meet my grandma so I went to meet grandma and asked if I could take um, Alyssa to Sunday school so she was all fine with that and and it kind of started from there so I I got, gradually got to know her her sister some of the cousins um, the mum and uh, not the mum sorry the her Nana and uh, yeah so it, it really started from there when they put the prayer cards on the tears to pray for everyone that went to Easter camp. What's prayer? She said. What's praying? How do you pray? The best that I could come up with was saying that um, Alyssa you can pray anytime to God. You talk to him like he's your best friend, you're valued, you, you are known by him, you are special to him and I could see that that really went into her, you know, that that, that that impacted her to know that she is special, she is loved. She heard that, her spirit heard that. I, I feel this is part of God's work. I've also got to say that um, 
the funny thing about this type of thing is that I had no idea that I'd been asking God to use me in some way, but in the ways that I thought, it, it, it didn't figure at all. It's just in the ordinary, everyday things. There you go. Simple, simple story, just trusting the promptings of the Holy Spirit in those everyday conversations, just showing God's love, taking the opportunities that are there when those moments come along. You know, they, they come and they go. And it's asking for the strength to step into those moments rather than shrink back from them when they come. So you make the connections into your own, the people you know, your neighbors, family, people on your street, people in your workplace, people in your world. What does it mean for you to contend for the faith? in those conversations, with grace and with love and with gentleness, but seizing the moments that are there because we've got something to say. We have good news, right? All right. The final S that Paul gives us in this passage is suffering. And uh, this is not going to be the most fun part of the message uh, because no one really wants to hear uh, about suffering and the fact that this may be part of the journey. But here's what Paul says in verse 29. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So for the Philippians, in their context, what this meant is that they were struggling because there was persecution happening against this church. It wasn't the kind of persecution where they were being thrown to the lions. Uh, it was more of a social level persecution because they're in a very Roman city. Philippi was a Roman colony. Uh, what that meant is that you had to please the Roman gods and you had to worship the Roman gods and you had to burn some incense to the Roman gods and you had to participate in these different civic festivals because if you didn't keep the Roman gods happy, then it was believed they would bring disaster on the city. So these Christians would say, we're not willing to do that. We're not going to worship all of these Roman gods. But because of that, they were despised. They were despised because they believed that that was breaking down the social order. People would say, well, you Christians, you could be bringing disaster on this city by not worshipping these gods. The next time there's an earthquake, it's probably your fault because you weren't praying to the gods that we pray to. So there was real antagonism and hostility. And there was a social cost to being a Christian. And there's a social cost to being a Christian today, isn't there? Now, we don't suffer nearly as much as our brothers and sisters in Christ have suffered in other times in history. Uh, we don't suffer nearly as much as Christians in other parts of the world are suffering today. So we can be grateful for that, and we should hold up in prayer those that are genuinely suffering massively for their faith. But even in New Zealand, there is a social cost to being a Christian. Because in a secular environment, Christianity is just seen as this outdated relic of the past. And if you follow it, you're a weirdo. And so we, we bear that cost as Christians. And from time to time, you experience a little bit of that kind of social marginalization. I remember uh, uh, one of Josh's soccer games last year. I was watching on the sideline with some parents. And after the games, a few of us talking, and there was something, Josh was planning to go to someone's party the next day, I think, go to one of these kids' house. And I said something to one of the parents like, oh, well, we'll, we'll drop him around after church. And as I said the word church, there was a lull in conversation around us. So everyone just heard church. This weird kind of awkward silence. You just feel the eyes on you, you know, and immediately you feel like, okay, I'm the social reject here. You know? 
I'm the outcast. Everyone heard church. You know, you just know what people are thinking. Everyone's very polite about it. And then the conversation moves on. But you know what they're thinking, right? You know. And we feel that. That's not nice to feel that way. It's not nice to be, feel like you're on the outer in conversations and social circles. And it happens with our kids too, right? I mean, last year, Ezra, our Ezra is eight. So he had a kid in his class call him a, what was it, a church nerd. A church nerd. Now, I don't think he cared, to be honest. It just water off a duck's back for Ezra. But kids are aware, and kids can be mean, and that's one of the things that kids can pick on. You know, for our older two kids that have taken some steps in their faith journey, they're very aware that they are a minority within their school, a, a real minority within their school. They're very, con- they're very conscious of that. You know, in a state school, there's barely any Christian kids. And they feel that. Like, our kids feel that. And we need to be equipping them for that because that's not easy. But what, here's the way Paul says it. He says, it has been granted to you to suffer. And in fact, the word granted is the word grace. Now, that's difficult to hear. But Paul is saying, it has been graced to you. It is an expression of God's grace. God's grace saves us. But it is also a particular grace of God to allow you to bear some social cost for what you believe. And, and somehow, that's a gift. It doesn't feel like a gift. But the reason it's a gift is because when you feel just a smidgen of that rejection, or you feel it for your kids, you are feeling just a fraction of what Jesus felt. We will never be called to suffer like Jesus suffered, but the world hated him. And when you feel like the world hates you, you're feeling just a fraction of what Jesus felt because the world hated him too. And what that's got the power to do is to bring you closer to Jesus because there's immense solidarity in that where you can say to him in those moments, Jesus, I know that you were insulted, you were ridiculed, you were despised, you had friends and, and the crowd around you just take off when things got hard. Hardly anyone left at the cross that was still following Jesus at that time. You know, he was betrayed. He was abandoned. He was executed. So he had the world against him. And you can say, Jesus, what I'm feeling now is nothing compared to that. But I still feel this pain. I still feel it for my kids. And I thank you that in some small way I'm sharing in your sufferings. And you know exactly what this is like. Because people turned against you like they're turning against me now. That's the gift of knowing that you're suffering and you're suffering in a way that is for Christ. And that invites you into a space of intimacy with Jesus. And it also invites you to consider how you're going to respond, that it's in a Christ-like spirit and not in some opposite spirit, that when you do feel that outcast kind of behavior coming from other people, or when you do feel the insults or when your kids get antagonized, that you don't respond in the same spirit that you don't respond with hostility and unkindness. Because First Peter says, when he was insulted, he made no threats. When he suffered, he entrusted himself to the Father. That's what we do. When we face a bit of that rejection, and when we have other people that we know look at us like we're from a different planet, we can entrust ourselves to the Father. We don't need to justify everything that we do and say. We don't need to prove to anyone else how cool Christianity really is. What we can do is entrust ourselves to the Father. And we speak a word, 
in season and out of season, and we're willing to take the opportunities that come along, but ultimately we don't fire bullets back. We don't throw rocks back at people that might want to throw rocks at us. We entrust ourselves to the Father. And that's walking through this thing like Jesus. That's stepping through it like Jesus did. So accept that hard, often unwelcome grace of suffering when it comes along in our life and see that as bringing you even closer to the Lord. So let me just bring us back right at the end to that statement Paul makes right at the beginning. Whatever happens, he says, conduct yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's a high calling. But again, this is not about perfection. This is about consistency. This is about living out the gospel that we believe. And I want to leave you with that question and ask you to make that personal today because I don't know all the stories and all of the applications. But you ask yourself now and you bring this before God and say, am I genuinely living in a manner that is worthy of this gospel? Does my life really reflect the truth that I hold to so dearly? Or am I sitting here watching this, nodding my head and affirming a whole lot of things, but I'm going to walk out the door and just live just the same as everybody else. And if we don't have anything in our lives that looks any different to anyone else, what have we got to offer them? Nothing. So let's stand as one, unified as a church for the sake of the world. Let's strive for the cause of the gospel, offering the gospel and being willing to defend the gospel in conversation when that's appropriate. And let's even be willing to take upon ourselves the suffering that might come our way knowing that ultimately it brings us closer to Jesus. Let's live a life worthy of the gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the, the, the preciousness of the gospel that you have given us. And we hear this call to, to live that truth out in our lives before a watching world. And Lord, to some of us, it just feels like a huge mountain to climb. And we feel that distance between how we want to live and what our lives actually look like. But we thank you, God, that you are so full of grace and kindness that you come to us this morning with such tenderness and you forgive us where we need forgiveness and you take away guilt and you remove our shame. And I just ask for anyone now, Lord Jesus, who, who is feeling a sense of shame or guilt, that Jesus, that would turn into a holy conviction from your spirit that can be brought before you and confessed and you'd bring freedom from that. Bring us freedom to live out this truth with joy and with boldness and with passion. And Lord, to do this walking with you, help us not to do any of this out of obligation, but out of joy and out of gratitude, Jesus, because you've gone to the cross for us. We thank you that you walked that road for us. Help us to be willing to walk the road that lies in front of us with grace, with obedience, and with boldness, and make us unified as a people, we pray, for the sake of the world. We love you, Lord, and it's in your name we pray these things. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.